BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to podcast. I've got with me Savannah James Bailey. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, you are a producer of TV and film, Fox Club Films being a prominent name in your of, of things you that is your company, should I say? Um, and credits include a few shots we've already featured on the podcast when we had Nev Pierce on. Ah, lovely Nev. Bricks, Ghosted, and Locking have all featured on this podcast already. So we've talked about you, even though you weren't here. Hopefully nice things. Very nice things. Nev was full of praise indeed. You're in post on uh, Amrul Khadi's debut, Layla. Do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what that's about? Layla is the sort of culmination of quite a long ongoing collaboration with Amru. So we did four shorts together before the feature. And the film draws from quite a lot of the themes we explored in the shorts as well, but um, it's a love story. It's a, a love story between a British Palestinian drag performer who asked to perform at this kind of horrible corporate pride event, turns it into this quite radical takedown and unexpectedly catches the eye of one of the marketing execs for the company, who's this cis white gay guy. Um, and they it sort of sparks this beautiful romance but that has to grapple with the kind of forces of identity politics and trying to work out whether they can overcome that to be together um and it's a very uplifting journey of self-discovery that's sort of very celebratory of what it is to be a queer person of color and the like resilience and strength within that community Mm. and the world of drag and the color and fun that people create out of hardship what was the kind of tipping point that sort of made you all feel confident that the next step was a feature film? That's a really good question. And I'm not sure that there's a particularly specific answer to it. I think I think partly just feeling confident in what we'd done with the shorts and mm. feeling like, you know, we'd practiced and we'd tested out ideas and we'd made mistakes and we'd learned from them and... Mm. Um, and that we were ready for that next step. And I think also, the, yeah, growing that confidence of voice and feeling like the work we'd done had gained enough sort of respect and trust within the industry that we could 
see a route to getting a feature made. And with the shorts, we really did grow an audience, which I think was a very exciting part of that process for me. A lot of shorts I'd made before, Nev's a bit of an exception because we did quite a few together as well. But quite often when I was starting out, I'd meet writers or directors that I liked and I'd just jump onto a project and sort of service whatever vision they had. And um, and then you put it out into the world and then you move on to the next thing. But I think with Amru, partly because we, we met doing the BFI Flare and BAFTA Mentorship Programme, which is a programme for LGBT filmmakers. And so we sort of founded our relationship off these two weeks of just watching so many queer films and talking about queer cinema and what we felt was missing in that space and what we wanted to say as filmmakers. And um, yeah, I think when we then started to make these films, we found because they were saying something quite different and they were addressing identities and issues that we hadn't really seen before on screen that there was a bit of a cult following that grew around them. I remember one of the most surreal experiences. I went into a Dalston Superstore, which is a kind of queer club in uh, in Dalston. And I sat at this table and the table of people next to me were talking about one of our shorts. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, do you know Amru? And they were like, no, <laughs> just watched it. It was the first time that I sort of, you know, you make shorts and often outside of film festivals, it's mainly your friends and family who are kind of supporting them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and everyone was so excited. That to, what a lovely moment to happen. Upon. Yeah, it was great. Um, and so, yeah, I think we just, the, the film is very much made with that audience in mind. And I yeah. think trusting that if you make something very specific to a certain community that it has uh, like the legs to travel beyond it. Yeah. And that if you make something that's authentic and emotionally true, that even if the world and the characters are quite specific, that the kind of wider resonance will be felt by a wider audience. And, and what do you think is the power, power of cinema to sort of tackle a complex and nuanced, nuanced subject like identity? I mean, it's, it's something that obviously tabloid journalism has made her a horrible song and dance about and really <laughs> misrepresented. So what 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 can what what's the power of cinema really to try and sort of draw out some truth about it? I mean, I feel like there's a whole podcast on that conversation yeah. alone. But um I think I mean it's many things. I think one is that, you know, when you see when you see yourself on screen, you're sort of being given a moment in the spotlight. Yeah. I think it can make your identity feel worthy. It's like, oh, wow, that character who I re- relate to is worthy of this screen time and they're worthy of that spotlight. And so, so am I. Um, and I think it also, you by being able to see stories and characters that you relate to from that perspective of the audience watching the screen, I think you can sort of imprint your own lives um, onto it in a way that allows you a bit more perspective than when you're kind of trying to unpick what's going on in your life just with yourself and your own mind. Yeah. It's like externalizing what you're going through. 
Um, yeah, there was there was a there was a talk at Sundance London, and uh, we're recording this the week after Sundance London, so that's kind of fresh in my mind. <laughs> and it was it was called it was called I think it was like Sex on Screen: The Modern Gaze or something like that was the name of it. And you had like an intimacy coordinator was part of the panel. You had a couple of directors, but you had an actor on there, a trans male called Leo, Leo Mejio, I think it is. It's it's a Puerto Rican Greek actor, and and he was he was saying exactly what you've just said actually about the idea of when as a trans male getting roles in movies, it's like suddenly you're representing something that you've not you've not seen on film. In you know you talked about kind of roles he was given before which were very sort of sexless almost as the way, way he described them. And then suddenly mm-hmm. you're front and center and you are the attraction and that idea of being attractive in a world that you, that, that you recognize you live in, but that the film can tell a story of like where that becomes, a, that becomes something that people can also, other people can see happening as well. Yeah. And I think particularly if you're, if you don't see your identity represented all the time in everyday life, I remember this is not film. I was obsessed by the bill, the um, police, like soap. Yeah, yeah. When yeah, I was growing yeah. up, and um, hard not to be in Britain. I think it was on every <laughs> day at one point. Uh, and I remember this lesbian kiss on it, and I used to watch it with my kind of childhood best friend, who I'm still super close to, and we were so excited about it the next day. And looking back, I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense at the time probably like 10 I didn't really I couldn't necessarily understand why it was that that scene more than any other scene in the entire you know 10 years series or whatever it been um why that gripped me so much and then looking back you go oh that was probably a bit of an awakening moment for me and actually just being able to see that representation and it like opens up possibilities for what your future could be or what yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I I teach at Liverpool Media Academy, and I I shared with my students a couple of examples of when of when I was growing up of sort of the way the way representation began to change, and soap operas being a bit like your, your Bill example. And there was in the in the mid to late eighties, there was the first gay kiss on in a, on in a, between a, between two men. But I also shared with them the tabloid media reaction at the same time, and it was. In 2023, it was so hard to believe the horribleness. And when you see the scene, it's literally a man kissing another man on the cheek. It's it's barely what you would call it. You know, I mean, it's two gay men, so it's a gay kiss, but it's not. It's not passionate. It's, you know, there's nothing overtly sexual that could that could get anyone going either way. You know, and the idea that this was the end of the Western civilization, the way the tabloid media were covering it, was. It, it's hard to remember a time when that was that was just an acceptable way to talk. And I think it's such a there's such a kind of chicken and egg situation between culture and society where it does culture reflects society, but it also shapes it. Mm. And so I know for a lot of gay men growing up, when pretty much the only representation of gay life in not only film and TV, but in in you know the papers and in schools was all about the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And they grew up in absolute terror that their sexuality was going to equate to death. And that, you know, if they'd had representation that was positive and that showed just normal people whose sexuality is just a facet of their identity and not, 
you know, doesn't equate to doom because so often that is what representation has been to date. It's like the lesbian dies or the... Yeah, know, yeah, the trope. I get HIV. Yeah. It's those tropes that really do have lasting damage. Um, so that's, yeah, one of the things that really excites me about Layla is that we're sort of throwing away the tropes and not ignoring the challenges that still exist for people whose mm. identities do face prejudice and you know that's the complexities to navigate but there's also the queer community is amazingly resilient and people pull together and the sort of hilarity and creativity and um love and support is also really strong and i think that doesn't get enough screen time maybe because people don't think it's you know there's a tendency we we reach for like the most dramatic stories on screen often yeah and you know death and trauma are often quite good drama but whether they are an accurate reflection of people's lives is another question yeah i suppose that's always that's always going to be the challenge of film and tv isn't it is that to be dramatic you've got to be dramatic <laughs> yeah but I think, you know, we experience drama in our everyday as well. Like, it's those, yes, you do have massive life events that really shape the course of everything. But in the space of a day, we all go through our own interpersonal drama. And sometimes I think actually exploring the kind of intricacies of that is equally as powerful as big, splashy car chases and Indeed. You know, life-changing events. Indeed. Now, TV stuff you've been you've been working on. I mean, tonally quite different. One at one, certainly one of the shows you've done, which is the TV series Queens of Mystery. Queens of Mystery. Um, three crime writing sisters and their twenty eight year old niece using their extensive knowledge of crime to solve whodunit style murders in the picturesque village of is it Wildermarsh or Wildmarsh? Wildmarsh. Wildmarsh. Is that a real place? It's not. No. <laughs> And um, that, I'm actually sat under the the neon light that um, is the front of the bookshop in Queens of Mystery, which is like the precinct for the show. One of the things we talked about before we started recording was just that I, that notion of the idea of the difference between making films and making TV. So, in very blunt terms, what's your with those two recent experiences close together? What would you say are kind of like headline differences for you between pulling a TV, producing a TV series? and producing a, a film with someone you've worked with on four shorts leading up to making it? Um, I will answer that, but I also <laughs> just want to say that, you know, they are they are very different, but at the same time, on the sort of representation question, yeah. I think one of the things I love about Queens of Mystery, and which uh, something I've taken away from it, which yeah. I now try and do in a lot of my work, is what I call this kind of idea of Trojan horsing, where... You know, ultimately people watch film and TV to be entertained. Mm -hmm. And Queens of Mystery is a really, really fun, entertaining murder mystery show. But it's got three female leads over the age of 50, which is a complete rarity. Um, one, only one of the seven lead characters is a white man. We've set it in this like picturesque, sort of bucolic English countryside village, mm -hmm. but have done it in a way that's like the England we'd like to see and the England that maybe 
is truer to life than what you might see in a the kind of exported drama that we often, you know, the Midsummer Murders and the Downton Abbeys, and, which create a very kind of whitewashed um, version of England. It is different, but I, it's my Trojan horse. And we sort of. No, I, like I, think, that's, I think that's a. I think that's a really <laughs> cool. A really cool thing to 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 what to to be conscious of doing. Yeah. You often hear criticism stuff that tries to be representative, in the sense of it, they feel like they're being hit. The critics feel like they're being hit with it, whereas if it's just part of the show, yeah, and it reaches an audience that would never go to see Layla, but yeah, Amru actually has a cameo in Queens of Mystery. Really? Um, yeah, they're they're in the in season two as a sort of presenter at a you know local event. Excellent. And how often a you know, you can you can get a Middle Eastern drag performer in front of people that would never go to see a film about a Middle Eastern drag performer. So, yeah, I love it. Um, and it's a lot of fun to make. But to answer your actual question, I think the main difference that I felt is just the amount of time. Um, and in two respects, I guess, making a film, or at least my experience of making Layla, you know, development is, it's really hard to get films made and development can be very slow and um on the other hand when you get into production we shot for six weeks whereas queens of mystery shot for 16 weeks and the amount of energy you can throw into something that's six weeks versus 16 is really different Mm. and i did really love that you know the I think in TV, you just have to treat it as your kind of day job because otherwise you burn out so quickly. Um, and there was something quite special about the film of just everyone's sort of enthusiasm and love for the project and this sense of pulling together around an idea that everyone was really passionate about. Um, I think probably my experience on Queens of Mystery was quite different to what it might be to produce other TV shows because we did approach it in quite an indie film way. Okay. I mean, the the format of the series is each season is three 90-minute episodes. So it's almost like making three indie features just at the same time and back to back. Um, <laughs> so that's 12 which, weeks to make three 90-minute episodes, is that what you're saying? You said 12 weeks before. Six, 16 weeks. 16 yeah. weeks, sorry. Yeah, I think 16. Maybe it was 16 weeks with two weeks off between each, so three blocks. So maybe 14 weeks shoot, but 16 weeks production period. Okay, okay. And that's really hard. and <laughs> takes a lot out of you. Um, but there's also benefits to it in terms of the financing tends to be more straightforward. You know that it's going to be put out into the world. You sort of avoid the anxieties of is anyone actually going to see this? How are we going to get it in front of audiences? You know that it's got that, it's on a certain date, it's going to be I hadn't thought about it in terms of anxieties. You're right. Yeah, there's this, this, once once you're off, you you know where it, what its place is in the world. I mean, obviously a studio film has the same thing, but a TV programme that gets commissioned is going to be shown on that station or channel, isn't it? Yeah. There's no two ways about it. Yeah, and once you've delivered it, it's sort of in the, channel's hands and yeah. you cross your fingers and hope for the best and do what you can to promote it but yeah I think the the life of film is much longer and yeah the sort of level of personal investment for me and Layla is huge because 
like I said, it's been a long time working with Amru and it's just a project I'm so passionate about. So it feels very much from both of our hearts um, in a way that Queens of Mystery is just great fun. And I love Judy and Unthank, the creator, is such a talented writer. And um, we've learned a lot working with him just in terms of he's got this kind of amazing clockwork ability. Like murder mysteries are just pieces of mechanical yeah. clockwork and he's so good at it and um yeah it's, i've enjoyed it enormously but yeah but quite a different process well look thank you for sharing those uh, experiences and observations we're going to move on to the uh to the uh the format of the show three films that have impacted everything we had at life you have given me three films <laughs> i have i feel like this is basically just going to be a therapy session for me it always every show I've done. If I'm honest with you, Savannah, so don't don't feel don't feel that you'll be alone in that one. And I mean, both. I get it every time I do it, and I'm getting it vicariously. Um, but um, for the listener that's not not heard this one before, Savannah's given me three films. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn five dollars into one hundred and fifty dollars instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code Champion One Fifty. Then place a five dollar wager on any sport. You'll receive one hundred and fifty dollars in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc um we're going to talk about each film for five minutes and when the five minutes are up we'll hear this sound and then we'll move on to the next one does that seem all fair and reasonable to you savannah it does. It's a, bit, it's a bit scary. The um the pressure of the time there is. It's je- think of it as jeopardy. Think of it as jeopardy rather than pressure. So without further ado, and uh, we're starting with Inside Out from 2015. Do you want to tell us why that is such a fond film memory for you? Where do you where do you see this first time? I went to see it with my dad mm-hmm. um, at a cinema in central London. Okay, and. So I, I, yeah, before we get into it, I guess I, my confession is that my cinema history is quite shameful. So all of these films, you say changed everything about your adult life, but I think all of these films I've seen as an adult. Um, impacted your adult is, life though, so they can impact, impact your adult life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this was, I think I was 22 when this came out. Mm-hmm. And I went to see it with my dad and I have never cried so hard at a film in my life. Really? And I did not expect that going into the cinema. And um, Pixar have a habit yeah, of this, though, don't they? They're very good at it. Yeah, but I mean, I've seen a lot of you know, Toy Story left me cold, up, shed a tear, but didn't like have a full on breakdown. Mm. But I was, I was sobbing so uncontrollably that my dad was like, "Do you need to leave the cinema?" So, what got you with Inside Out then that hadn't got you before with the others? Well, I think it was just 
something clicked into place about my understanding of my own emotions and okay. the sense of relief that that gave me was massive because I think they'd up to that point maybe been a slight enigma to myself and seeing it there on the screen I was like oh that's you can have this <laughs> it sounds so obvious now but you can have this kind of confusing mix of emotions and that's okay um and I think I'd also just connected quite directly to the character of Riley. I was um, similarly, I think I was 13 when I moved from London to Kent from this sort of very like liberal creative world to this quite conservative small town mm. and spent a lot of those years feeling sort of like a bit of an alien, I guess. Okay. And having had this very, very happy childhood, I suddenly, yeah, in your teenage years, just all of these quite confusing emotional things hit and you know at that time yeah it was a big big five years like my parents divorced I was diagnosed with a chronic autoimmune disease I was grappling with my sexuality I had my first experience of sexual assault mm -hmm. and all through I had you know some great friends through all of that but still that sense of like being in this new place and kind of ripped out of this quite comforting childhood life that I'd had and feeling like an outsider in this new world and suddenly with all of this like big shit going on where yeah and um you know and inside out it's like that moment where despite all the joy that's come before for her everything just suddenly gets tinged with these complications of emotions and mm. that sense of tragedy of leaving childhood innocence behind and having to face this sort of harsher realities of the world the, the thing we're told it's always like there's always like this how this halcyon view of what it means to be a child versus being an adult and and I, I remember reading a paper about this one time where it was like actually we 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 like to forget as opposed to that we know it happened that childhood is can be quite hot you know you you, you describe horrible things you said that happened to yourself personally but just generally childhood can be horrible it's not a it's not so funny we, we remember the fun bits but actually it's full of yeah, doubt. and looking back, I think I just I just felt so ill-equipped. It's like mm. you're still at that age, you're still a child, but suddenly you're kind of entering this more adult world, and just you know, if I I think if I went through those things now, I'd have such a different emotional reaction to it. But there's a moment in the film where the control board just shuts down, and she's kind of in this like emotional daze. And honestly, I think I, that was like basically how I walked through most of my teenage years and those walls kind of went up but I think do it in in a sense to protect that core inner joy mm. so I had you know there's a lot of joy that is in my life and was in my life uh, at the time and just that sense of like needing to protect that from the external things that's going on but if you do that you shut out a lot as well and I have kind of quite hazy memories at that time because I think just was trying to get through it and um yeah watching that and I guess the message of the film is like it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to feel confused and it just like clicked something into place for me a bit that yes it's important to like practice vulnerability and to open yourself up <laughs> indeed the bell, the bell stops you there uh, no, that's yeah. I mean, I just have to ask because if your dad was saying to you, you know, we, sh should should we leave or something? Yeah, you know, is it your? 
What was the conversation like with your dad after the film had finished? I actually don't remember. <laughs> I don't think that there was a sort of big, like, opening up or anything. I think, yeah, I think I probably just left the cinema and he was like, you're right. And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> You've answered him like I a 13 year old. Yeah, basically. I like, <laughs> it let it out for that moment and then it <laughs> to that place of comfort. But, Brilliant. No, it's, yeah, it has a special place to me, that one. Moving three years on from that one, we've got Love, Simon from 2018. Do you want to tell us how you got to see that film, who you saw it with, and why Why is that a fond film memory for you? Yeah, so I, got, I chose this one because it's had a massive impact on the direction of my career. Okay. Um, and I think I mentioned that in 2017, I was part of the BFI Flair and BAFTA. Yeah. And so around that time, I was sort of growing this passion for telling queer stories on screen and like having a lot of discussions about how to move those narratives forward. Hmm. And then so the following year, 2018, um, Love, Simon screened at Flair. And it's just an extraordinary screening. Like watching that film with a predominantly LGBT audience and the energy and buzz and love that was in the room and continued as everyone left the cinemas was just amazing. It was like this relatively pain-free celebratory love story of these two gay teens. And it was in cinemas. And then it was, you know, when it came out, it was like on billboards. And that thing we were talking about of, you know, feeling... I think their tagline was everyone deserves a great love story. And that really, in that room, I think that really resonated and seeing it given that social space. Um, and so around that time, I'd become quite good friends with these two other up and coming queer filmmakers, Lauren Dunn and Sarah Bacon. Okay. And we'd sort of met on, I guess like film festival scene and networking events. And I had a lot of admiration for the work that, both of them were making. Yeah. And so that summer, we were all at Edinburgh Film Festival, which was a couple of months after Flair. And it was at the Edinburgh Cayley, which for those who don't know, is each year they used to throw this big, good old Scottish dance for everyone attending the festival. It was such a fun event. And we'd all gone outside to get some air. And we started talking about Love, Simon, and particularly about that tagline, that kind of idea that everyone deserves a great love story. No, it's and a beautiful phrase. Yeah, and we so we were sort of just asking, like, where's ours then? Like, where's our joyful lesbian teen rom-com that we didn't get to see when we were growing up and where nobody dies and no one's thrown out of their home or sent to conversion therapy or, you know, forced to endure these horrible things. And it was just a moment we were like, well, we're all filmmakers, so why don't we make one? <laughs> um, and, yeah, initially we we kind of teamed up to find one project and we put out the word that we were on the hunt for something that fit that bill. We read tons of sample scripts and met loads of writers and just couldn't quite find the right idea that way. So we put it on the back burner for maybe a year. And then in 2020, we decided to look at books and we optioned this incredible Australian uh, YA novel called Amelia Westlake Was Never Here which we set up for development with working title with this amazing American writer called Britta London adapting. Okay. And I think during the process of doing that, we just 
had so much fun and realized that there was an appetite and we knew there would be an appetite from audiences because we sort of were the audience um and we were slightly surprised that there was an appetite as well from financiers and i think people waking up to the idea that you actually you know there's a lot of value in authentic storytelling mm. and not a lot of producers coming at it from that perspective yeah um and so from that we launched a new production company called teen club Oh, and okay. now have a full slate of these sort of amazing, ambitious film and TV projects from brilliant queer talent. And yeah, teaming up with friends was like one of the best decisions of my life. So all thanks to Love, Simon, really. Do the filmmakers behind Love, Simon know this trigger that they fired? <laughs> I don't know if they do. I think we did at some point approach them with when we were trying to set up Amelia Westlake. Yeah. Um, but no, I don't think they do. We should write them a nice letter. I mean, out of interest, from from with with you sort of questioning where's our love story and seeing Love Simon and going, wow, what a brilliant love story. It, 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 we, you know, we live in a more progressive world than the one I was describing earlier when there was a gay kiss in EastEnders. But is this is there still some resistance to? To, to it in a mainstream sense or is that is is I think I think in, in a way experience. TV TV has always been slightly more progressive in terms of what's considered oh finish your sentence <laughs> in what's considered mainstream because I think you can it can be one storyline or it can be and you can move on from it in the next episode, or you can get people to like the characters enough that then you can introduce that, and it's then you're not going to. And a public them. service broadcaster has a responsibility beyond yeah. investors in a film. I think, I think there's definitely a resistance from that. You know, a cinema-going audience maybe won't turn out for it, but I think we also just know how there's such an avid audience, and because people. You know, I think if you look at something like Heartstopper, which I know is TV, but that was immensely popular with the age group that it was targeting. But it was also popular with a lot of older queer people because mm. we hadn't had that growing yeah. up. So you kind of don't have anywhere to, you don't have that kind of canon of stuff to look back on. Well, look, let's move on to your final choice, which is just a couple of years ago now, 2021's The Worst Person in the World. Um, do you want to tell us where that where that where that fits in in terms of? I mean, so far we've had you grappling with what it was like to be thirteen and all the life changing things for good or for bad that happened for you. Seeing a film and how that kick started a whole new offshoot in terms of what you were going to try and make. So, the worst person in the world. Where does that fit into the uh, into the life of Savannah? Um. I suppose maybe it's just another like chapter, you know, those things, those films that bookend chapters of your life. Yeah. And I mean, for a start, I'm a massive Joachim, uh, Joachim Trier fan. Mm. Um, and I really liked Loud and Bombs and Thelma and Reprise, which we were talking about before we started recording. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I maybe have less to say about this because I think it's probably still a bit raw. Um, and I've actually only seen it the once, partly because I'm sort of terrified to ruin the experience. You know, ah. when you have something that you love so much and then you're exactly like, I can't you watch mean. it again, it might let me down. 
Um, but yeah, it was a very profound cinema experience and also just day in my life. Um, so in I went to way? see this at I went to see this at eleven a.m. on a Sunday at the Curzon Soho. Beautiful time and to see a film. I was literally the only person in the room, um, and I'd heard a bit about it, but I and you know I liked the director, but I hadn't gone in knowing a huge amount and i think i've just i've never related to a character in the way that i did with is it julie the character and i think she's called julie yeah um she's called julie and i think this the sort of sense of complication which i suppose is quite similar to my experience with inside out maybe i'm tapping into a theme here Mm. um and psychoanalyze me based on that but um yeah the sense of complication and of someone who isn't really sure what she wants from life but ultimately has i think just a a capacity for love and care and kindness but who sometimes fucks up and gets confused and you know i think she's in terms of like what career do i want my I studied biochemistry at university and before going into film. So okay. that I related to, I think she does medicine before becoming an artist in the film. Um, questioning, do I want a family? Which at the time was quite a big question that was on my mind because my ex-partner was really keen to start a family and I wasn't so sure. Hmm. Um, and yeah, what do I want from like romantic relationships and just... I guess it's a kind of coming of age film for a millennial who's in their thirties. Um, and I think it was particularly, I was having some sort of struggles in my relationship at the time and yeah. seeing that film at that particular moment in time, I guess much like inside out was just that reminder that it's okay to feel confused and uncertain. And I think I just took away from it this sense that whatever route life takes that will probably be okay and even if tragedies happen and things don't go to plan you just sort of have to take it as it comes and try and navigate it as best as you can and, i mean this um, is a, i mean you, you you won't you shouldn't be surprised to learn that this is a common theme with people i speak to the podcast in the sense <laughs> of you go to see a film with like zero expectations and then you end up watching it and you go well this film is obviously written for me this is this is it feel when it feels so personal, even though it's a mass medium. That's yeah. for, I mean, admittedly, you you got the perfect treat, didn't you? Which is a cinema <laughs> to yourself, which is emphasizes it even better. Yeah, and I, I won't go into like the specific details of the rest of the day, but it did sort of I think coming out of that film did give, just give me a sort of strength that I maybe needed to address some of the stuff that was going on in my own life. And hmm. actually now I quite often I'm also obsessed by the soundtrack of it. Okay. Um, it has such a good soundtrack. And I think it's my go-to, if I'm now trying to grapple with those same emotions of like trying to work out how I feel about things. And is that something that you latched onto? On, it takes me back. Is that something you latched onto when you were watching the film? Or is that something yeah. you kind of discovered after the fact? No, I, I was aware of it watching it. I went, got home and I put the soundtrack on. Oh, okay. And I think I listened to it on repeat for the entire rest of the day um, whilst crying. <laughs> but I, 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 I mean, obviously we don't need to know the details, but it is, I think there is something about 
Oh, there's the bell. But I'll finish what I was saying. There is something about seeing it in the daytime and then coming out. You've got the rest of the day, yeah. which means it's the, the call to action, whatever it for good or for bad, is there. Yeah. Whereas if you'd have saw that at nine o'clock at night and come out into eleven o'clock at night, you'd have slept on it or something. You know, the 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 call to action doesn't happen in the same way. It really ate at me, um, and yeah, I do really want to watch it again, but I'm a bit scared. Give it another year or two. Don't rush it. Yeah. My... I think that's a good idea. Hold on to that feeling. Well, look, thank you very much for sharing three films that have impacted everything around adult life. I mean, you kind of like the first <laughs> one up that where it's been real time impacting in, in the adult life. I like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the crazy thing is I, I was raised in a family of filmmakers, mm. but, and you'd think that that would mean that I had a sort of great film education growing up, but, I think my parents wanted to keep their work life separate as much as possible. And right. we never watched films at home. We did, wow. Our TV was in a cupboard and it would like get brought out to stick on a VHS of like the Jungle Book or something. Um, wow. So yeah, I sort of discovered films as an adult, which is very glad I did. Indeed, indeed. Well, look, <laughs> best of luck with uh, the rest of what, what Post has involved for Layla. For you. Thank you very much. And I would love in a future show to have the director on to talk about the film. I'm sure that that could be arranged. Superb. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Oh, thanks, Stuart. It's nice to chat to you as always. Indeed. Come on,